The Private Placement Memorandum. That's kind of like the big document the syndication attorneys work with that we give our clients. It's aside from the operating agreement, which really makes the investment entity work itself, the Private Placement Memorandum is a absolutely critical document. What does it do? Well, in summary, what it does is it allows the syndicator, the fund manager, the business raising capital, it allows them to give to potential investors an identification of all the terms of the investment, identify risks, identify conflicts of interest, all for the purpose of allowing that prospective investor to make a good decision for themselves about whether or not to exist. It is a benchmark, a keystone in private offerings. It is an absolutely critical document. It is absolutely required for non-accredited investors. And even though it is not required for accredited investors itself, there is hardly a private offering under 506C or even 506B uh, to only accredited investors that doesn't use them. Why? Because it's such an important document. It's the document when the bottom falls out and you need it the most, you can say, hold it up and say, this is what I told you about the investment. It is your get out of jail free card because you don't belong in jail when you've got this document. You've shown the investors all the things that really can go wrong. You've identified all those terms. So in this video, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go through in detail the 10 major sections that go into a private placement offering. I know you're gonna find it helpful and it's uh, really just like a, a list of all those things that are there, the things that I think about as a syndication attorney when I draft them. I hope you enjoy this video. As a note for my podcast, as a note for my podcast listeners, I want to say thank you. This is our 100th episode. That's why I did such a long uh, talk for you. I wanted to make sure that you had that, and I wanted to say thank you. You listening to my podcast means a lot to me. Uh, I enjoy speaking to you, and we've helped uh, hundreds and hundreds of people along the way do their own deals. Uh, and generally, I believe putting this kind of good information out into the world is the right thing to do. So thank you. Thank you very much for enjoying my podcast. I hope you keep subscribing. Tell your friends, get them to subscribe. Again, thank you for being here. Uh, 100 episodes. Wow, that is a big So the private placement memorandum has a lot of parts. Now we're gonna talk about the 10 biggest parts and how they function and what their role is. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be in this section and it certainly doesn't mean it needs to be in this order because when I draft them, they're definitely not in this order. But I thought it was the clearest organization to talk with you about how to organize what a private placement memorandum is what that thought process is, because it really goes to the, again, the heart of what the investment is and the purpose of that of that PPM to describe those conflicts, that risk, uh, those terms in a clear and concise manner. So 
Without further ado, the first big kind of topic area of a private placement memorandum is the summary of terms. So this is the terms of the investment. Now, it does a lot of things underneath the summary of terms. If you've seen them, most often it's structured as a table. That's how I write them as well. And in that table, we're doing things like we're identifying the investment entity itself, we're identifying who the manager is, but we're also uh, identifying that investment objective. So we're putting it in the summary of terms to make it clear and called out right here that the objective of this investment is to make returns for its investors. So it's a security, right? That's the whole purpose, to make, per make funds, make uh, money for our investors is to do that and in some manner. So we describe in some detail about what that objective is and how it's going to be achieved. So maybe you've identified specific terms. Sometimes we put that in here as well. Uh, I mean, uh, specific uh, goals, some targets that you wanna hit in terms of IRR or, uh, or multiples or things like that. That oftentimes goes here as well. Another absolutely critical part of the summary of uh, offering terms is who exactly is able to invest? Who are those eligible investors? Now, this is either one of two answers or both. So, uh, well, it's, it's, so it's either accredited investors. So accredited investors are those people who uh, meet the requirements of Regulation D, Rule 501, they're identified there in 501A, who those accredited investors are. So briefly, that's the, uh, they make $200,000 or $300,000 of income for the past two years with the expectation of the third year uh, or the current year to make that same amount. It's $300,000 if we're counting the spouse or they have the net wealth of over a million dollars, not including the, uh, the value or any equity in the private primary residence because negative equity does, uh, does have an effect, uh, but any positive equity does not. So that's the accredited investors eligible uh, investor type. Now, almost always you're going to be taking them uh, because why wouldn't you? The other group that is uh, that can be available for a uh, for a five uh, is for a five hundred six B offering, and those are your non-accredited investors. Those are simply those people who have not reached the level of the accredited investor. Now they must be known to you, and they must have some level of sophistication about business and about investing. So they must meet a minimum threshold in order to invest. You wouldn't want to take somebody who's never balanced a checkbook in their life and put them in as a non-accredited investor. They're probably not sophisticated enough. Not that they're bad people, they just don't fit into the criteria and probably shouldn't be investing. But those, uh, it, those people should be there, uh, uh, the non-accredited investors. If you're doing a 506B offering, uh, may very well be an eligible investor. And then, like I said, third uh, category is both. Most of the time, if you're doing a 506B offering, it's going to be both. You'll both have non-accredited investors, which is limited under 506B to 35 of them in any 90-day period, and an unlimited number of accredited investors. If you're doing a Rule 506C offering, you're just taking an unlimited amount of accredited investors, but they must be verified to be accredited investor. Uh, and so that's just a quick summary of what those, uh, 
uh, of what that eligible criteria is. Another important term is what's the offering size? Are you raising 5 million, 10 million, 100 million, a billion? It's important for investors to know because they need to know what they're getting into, right? It's a very different thing to invest in something that's going to be raising a million dollars. If I'm going to give you $200,000 and your raise is a million, wow, I suddenly own 20% of this thing. If you're going to be raising $1 billion, now I own very, very small amount, right? I own 0.2% of, of this thing, so much, much smaller. Uh, so uh, it's that what is that offering size? Uh, number three is really, or four is really the use of proceeds. Now, here we expand the use of, gen of proceeds greatly, but here I'm going to speak just kind of generally about it. I normally put a section in my terms that says we're going to be using these funds for paying for expenses as well as investing in the primary assets, whatever those are. Because remember, this isn't just real estate that uses these. Real estate is a lot of my clients, but it's not all. So I have, an, I have clients that invest directly capital into their business. I have ones that build funds or hedge funds or things like that. They're all buying different asset types and they're using the funds in order to buy those kinds of things. Another main term is the estimated hold period. So I give you $200,000. How long are you going to be using those funds in this investment before I get it back? Is this a three-year deal, a five-year deal, a seven-year deal, a one-month deal? It's kind of important for me to know so I have an expectation of, of how long it's gonna be tied up. If you leave, left this out, you're gonna have a hard time finding investors because they have no idea what they're getting into, right? If I give you $200,000, I kinda wanna know. Another key term, and probably the term of the offering that investors flip to first is what the distributions look like. I mean, we're giving you this money in order to get those distributions, so what do they look like? Am I getting a preferred return with some sort of water? Am I getting straight equity that's getting split out some way? Am I getting basically a preferred security so it's paying out at a fixed rate? I wanna know, I wanna see the language so I can understand what exactly it is. So that's a very key piece of information for me. What do the expenses look like? Am I getting, if I invest in your business, is my money going to be used for what kind of expenses? Is it going to be used for your, as the syndicator, for your office space and your personal assistant? Kind of important for me to know that. Is, is uh, are one of the regular expenses going to be paying for you know, preparation of tax returns? Most of the time it is. But it's not always. I'd kind of like to know, well, what is all this money that I'm providing you going for? And along the same lines of expenses, this is also where we talk about management fees. Now, we have lots of different kinds of fees that oftentimes get baked in. Not always. So I still some, I prepare some private placement memorandums with no fees, no management fees whatsoever, which is certainly an option, certainly a good marketing advantage. But it's, not, it's actually more common to have some sort of fees. So asset management fees, property management fees if it's a real estate deal, acquisition fees to buy the, uh, the asset, disposition fee to sell the assets, 
finance fees if there's outside financing being provided. These are all kinds of fees that, are, that exist that are common uh, and they need to be put here. They have to go into a private place of memorandum, obviously, but this is normally where we identify where those, uh, what, those fee, what that fee structure looks like. Another key term are, is transferability of membership interest. Now remember, under Regulation D, these things, these, this security is not freely transferable. So that's why cryptocurrencies oftentimes don't work. Because you have, if you have a cryptocurrency, by its very nature, it's, ha it's tokenized to make it freely tradable. Regulation D offerings, the Regulation D securities are not supposed to be freely tradable. It's right there in the rules. So this is normally where we talk about those things. There are major restrictions on the transferability. Now, the purpose of those restrictions is really just to reduce the, uh, the possibility of a secondary market being created. That's really the goal of the SEC here is to restrict it so there's not like these mini stock markets all popping up all over the place where people are trading our, their private placement offerings just on the value of the stock or the, of the units that there are. They should only be, in, uh, investments should be geared towards driving the business and towards the business goals of whatever it is. And I don't mean specifically a business because it can be, but it doesn't always mean. It can also mean a real estate thing or a private equity fund or something like that. But the goal is the money should be driving that, not, not a speculation on the value of the security itself. That's why it's restricted. It is not allowed. Another key item here is income tax considerations. Most of the time for a, uh, uh, a non-business, we're talking about these file partnership level tax returns. So if they most of the time, the entity choice will be an LLC and they'll file a K-1 and you'll get K-1s uh, for each investment that you make. And then lastly, for the major terms that I put in, and this is just high level, there's actually quite a few more, but I wanna give you a basic broad overview, is governing law. So. I've got a problem, I invested in your, in your uh, entity, and I've got a big problem, and I'm gonna file a lawsuit. Well, what law governs here? Is it the state where I am? Is it the state where uh, you are? Is it Delaware? Is it Wyoming? Is it Texas? Is it New York? Is it California? Where is that? It's a very important point, because if things go very bad, I need to know it's a major term. Choice of law is always a major term. Lawyers love it because it's a major topic for us. We study it in law school for a whole year. And so that's why it ends up in your agreements. But it also is very, very important. And so that's why it's included under the summary of terms. The next major topic, other after summary of terms, is the disclosures of risks and conflicts of interest. This is a major part of a private placement memorandum. Its job is to make sure that investors know what they're going into. Now, I oftentimes tell clients this, and I'm not really joking when I say it, although it's true, is if I were to draft the perfect risk statement, it would look like this. 
Dear investor, you are going to lose every single penny. I guarantee it. We're going to keep it all no matter what. If we make any, and you will lose every penny. Now, if I could draft it that way, it would be great because, boy, wouldn't it protect you well? No matter what happens, you are right. The investor doesn't get their money back. Of course, no investor is ever, ever going to invest in that. Why? Because they're investing in it to get money. So we need to give a proper picture of the risks and conflicts of interest that exist. So let's talk about risks first. When we're talking about risks, we're talking about reasonably foreseeable risks that could happen. Now, I'm not going to put in, the, in a PPM that there is a risk that the moon is going to fall out of the sky, land in the ocean, and cause a tsunami, which is putting the money at risk. I don't think that's likely to happen. Could it? Probably not, but I guess, you know, in, the, uh, in a quantum mechanics world, maybe there's a, a practically a non-zero answer that it could happen. Or if you've seen the movie Oppenheimer, you know there was a non-zero risk that the bomb was, the atomic bomb was going to blow up the entire world. It's a non-zero risk, it's there, but you're not going to put it into a private placement memorandum. We're putting in reasonably foreseeable risks. Now here we're talking about like business risks. So the big kind of overarching risk that's there for sure is, hey, investor, this is an investment. Investments by their very nature are inherently risky, otherwise there would be no return. You don't get no risk, no reward, right? So this is an investment and your money is at risk. You may lose money, it's possible. So that's sort of like the broad overall business, uh, business risk that exists. But there's also other risks. Things like when we talk to investors, we're oftentimes leaning on our past experience, right? So my experience, I personally have done quite a number of deals. I have a very good track record of generating returns for my investors. But that past history, the results that I got in the past for my investors are the past. It doesn't mean that my next venture is going to be successful. I'm going to try my darndest to make sure it is successful and wildly successful. But just because I had success in the past doesn't guarantee that in the future I'm going to have the same success. That's one of the risks that you also need to make sure investors know. Another key risk is you as a syndicator are bringing to this deal, you're putting this thing together and you're using all your talent, your skills, all, all those things that make you special into this investment, right? And that's why investors are making this decision because of you. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that's the decision that they're making. They're trusting you to do this. So, you are a key person to this investment. And there's no guarantee that you're gonna be here next week in order to keep it running, right? I mean, you're gonna, you want to be, you're gonna try to be, but you never know when that bus is gonna be barreling down Main Street. So it's a risk that exists. It's a risk that needs to be disclosed, that hey, we've got these key people, 
including you, that exist, and they're very important to the operations, we can't make a certain guarantee that they're going to be with us always. Another key risk, and we actually talked about under summary of terms, and that's the lack of liquidity. So basically, because we can't freely trade this, because there's no public market for these securities, I can't just go and sell them on Wall Street, right? It doesn't exist to do that. So the investors need to know there may be a situation where you really want your money back, but you just can't get it. You just can't find a person who's going to buy it. Maybe the manager's got their money all tied up. Maybe all the other investors are, have their money all tied up, and you just can't sell it. It's not a liquid asset, and the investors just need to know that that's just the reality of it. Of course, there's always income tax risks. We don't know what taxes are going to be in the next few years. Maybe they'll, they'll be more favorable. Maybe they'll be less. It doesn't really matter for the purposes of drafting a PPM other than to let investors know, hey, we're drafting this based on the tax situation that we know today. Today, if it's real estate, we know we can depreciate the property. We know that exists. It's a reality thing. Maybe that will go away. I don't know. Maybe they will do away with 1031 exchanges. Don't know. It, it's just a, a reality that it may happen and investors need to know it. Now, why do they need to know these risks? Because what if some, one of them happened, right? And they're very mad. So let's say that they didn't really understand about the liquidity thing, right? They didn't understand that these are illiquid. They didn't see that section on your summary of terms, that, that there's these restrictions on it, or they didn't draw the conclusion of what that meant for them. Well, something happens in their life and they need to get that cash out. This is their only pool of cash and they need to get it. So they come to you and they say, I gotta get this cash out right now. Oh, I had a life event that requires it. And they are earnest and really, really need it. But you're in a situation at that point where you can't help them out and no other investor can help them out. Well, what do you think their complaint is gonna be? Why didn't you tell me that these are illiquid. Why didn't you go through and tell me that? I had no idea. I would have never invested if I had known that it was illiquid. That is why it's in the private placement memorandum. So you can hold up your private placement memorandum, point to the section and say, I did. See, it's right here. I, I told you that it's not, it's just not a liquid thing. If they make a complaint to the SEC or a state regulator and they get a copy of the PPM, you can show them and say, I told them that this was a risk. It's just a reality that, it's, that these things are not freely tradable. And they'll understand. If, a, if they try and take it to a lawyer and try and sue you because, darn it, that syndicator didn't tell me about it. The attorney, the plaintiff's attorney is going to look at that and be like, it's right here. You, you can't, you're not going to be able to sue because of it. It's all over this document that it's illiquid. I'm not going to take your case or I'll take it, but you're going to have to pay me hourly. You know, no attorney would take it on contingency because it's a loser. So that's why we're so careful about making sure our risks are well crafted.
Now, why don't we put in every risk in the known universe? Why don't we make this like a 10,000-page document that's got risks that are just crazy and ludicrous in there? Well, courts have actually said, you got to tell your investors risks, but you can't bury risks in other risks. So that's why. We carefully tailor the risks of those risks which are reasonably possible for a, a, that are reasonably foreseeable that could happen so that investors can make a decision about those things that are reasonable. It's not reasonable that that tsunami from the moon falling in the ocean is going to be a big problem. It's just not. So we don't put it there. That's why. So I don't list out everything. Normally there's quite a few pages of risks but it's only what I think is reasonably necessary. Is there one or two or three or five risks? It depends, but there's more than five and there's more than 10. It's probably, and I've never really counted, but my guess, when you add up all the different categories of risks, there's probably about 30 or 40. Uh, that's my rough guess. So the other piece of this puzzle is conflicts of interest. Now, when you as a sponsor are putting this deal together, you're getting paid most of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time you're getting paid. And when you're getting paid, there is an inherent conflict of interest. So a conflict of interest is when your needs don't necessarily match up 100% to the needs of, a, uh, of an investor. I think the best example of a conflict of interest that happens all the time is the sponsor is a property manager. So that property manager is making fees, property management fees on taking care of the property. In fact, that's the bulk of what they're making, prop, making their, uh, making their uh, fees on, is that management of the property. And the investors have identified, hey, this really actually is a good time to sell this, this asset. Well, the, the, the sponsor has a conflict of interest because they want to keep this thing going. They want to keep their property management job, you know, servicing the property. That's an inherent conflict. It exists. It must be disclosed. Now, conflicts of interest can exist. Not saying that they can they always are going to exist. And it's okay, they just need to be disclosed. Investors have to know, hey, these are the main conflicts of interest. I'm getting paid fees, I'm getting these things. Our interests are never going to be completely aligned. I'm gonna do my best to act in their, your best interest, but just know there are conflicts. That way the investor can read those conflicts and decide for themselves whether you are going to act in their best interest or not. If they don't, they don't have to invest. If they do think that you're going to act in their best interest, then they probably are going to invest. So that's why we disclose them, because they've got to be there. The third big section is capital uses and expenses. So we touched on this a little bit above under summary of terms, but that breakdown of how the money's being used is critical for investors to know. Under Regulation D, Rule 506B, when you have non-accredited investors, it's not only a darn good idea, it's required that you make a very detailed explanation about what those uses of the funds are going to be. 
Now, how detailed does it need to be? Does it need to be 30 pages of forecasts and analysis and things like that? No, it needs to be reasonable enough that the investor can see for themselves, okay, I'm gonna give them this kind of money. This money is gonna be used here to buy this asset. Some of this money is going to be paid for these fees. Some of these are going for legal expenses. Some of this is going for this so that the investor knows what they're buying, right? They're buying a piece of a company most of the time. And so they need to know, have a good feeling about, well, this is the entity that I'm buying. Even if they're taking just a preferred equity position, like a preferred stock, they still need to know because it's a very different situation for me putting money into something that's gonna be used to buy, uh, to basically pay for you versus it's going to be paid for this Ferrari that's going to generate all this cash, right? They're two different things. So I need to know that as an investor. And that's why the use of funds is very important. At the same time, this is also where we talk about expenses, the kinds of expenses that are allowed to be spent, right? So is if we're paying for the, um, if we're paying for overhead management, well, that's a very important thing. I need to know that some of my money is being used to pay for that manager. If I'm getting distributions on money that's coming from investor money, starting to sound like a pyramid scheme, I wanna know that. I wanna see that in paper. Okay, well, if that money is getting, is getting paid to me, well, how is the money getting replaced on that? Because I need to know so that I can make a decision for myself on whether or not to invest. The fourth big topic, is the details about the security offering itself. So this is how many units are being offered. In reality, units are just sort of a construct that we use. It's not actually in any of the LLC's laws that they are actually units. It always is a percentage because really most of the time these are operating behind the scenes as partnerships. So it's really driven by percentages but units is a very convenient way to refer to it. So I almost always refer to everything in units because at the end of the day, it's easier to calculate, well, where exactly is, what exactly is that percentage rather than having to deal with the math of calculating varying percentages if there is, if you own 0.37215 of an investment, but that investment was going to raise $20 million and now it's, uh, and now through optimization, you were able to raise 19 million and you bought back $500,000 worth of units. Oh my God, how do you figure it out? It's much easier to just say, okay, well, those units got decreased here. So then my denominator changes and I can still figure out very quickly what my, uh, what my actual percentage of ownership is. So um, that's, that's one of the very key things. How much are those units selling for? Uh, how much, uh, what's the minimum investment? What, what kind of considerations are there for minimum investment? Does it have to be that? Uh, if I make an investment, are you able to use the funds immediately or do you need to wait a period of time? Is that money getting set, put into an escrow account or is it, is it going into the LLC's bank account? Those are the kinds of things that I want to know as an investor, and they should need to be in your PPM.
Number five and six I'm gonna do together. And that is your company background and the management profiles background. Remember what I said earlier, that people are, investors are ultimately making an investment in you. They're making a decision based on whether or not to trust you and at the end of the day, give you money in exchange for this hope of making more money. So the background of the company and the background of you as a manager are critically important. Everybody needs to know who they're investing into. If it was blank, nobody would invest. If they had no idea that was going to happen, it's just not going to happen. It's one of the major hurdles that exists when you're marketing a security under 506C and you put it on the internet and are trying to get investors. Because investors still need to know, they need to feel who that, invest, who that sponsor is. They need to know who's behind the curtain because nobody just throws money at a blank wall hoping that it's going to happen. It's, you're just not going to collect anything. So that somehow you need to overcome that hurdle. This is part of that. It also sets up, as part of a private placement memorandum, separate from a brochure, it, it puts you forward to give a reasonable basis for why somebody would make that investment in the first place. If you're a super experienced real estate professional, for example, then by putting that sort of detail into your uh, private placement memorandum, if somebody's reading the private placement memorandum, it's like, okay, I could see why somebody who's reasonable would invest in this. If, you, if your private placement memorandum for building a 20-story high-rise says, well, you went to clown school and got kicked out, and that's it, there's probably not a reasonable basis in order to invest. So that automatically weakens the entire structure. So setting up a good foundation of that background is necessary as part of the PPM. Now, what about the situation where you just don't have it? That's okay too, but we need to kind of make it kind of clear, right? We need to make it so that there's nothing being lied to, there's nothing hidden about that. So maybe you went to college and you graduated top of your class. Great, that's perfect for there. Maybe it's, you know, you've led a team in a similar type of, of setup, but it wasn't specifically about whatever this is. Okay, well, that still needs to be there so that we can come up with a rational reason in order for this to happen. Remember, investors invest in you, but they do it on an emotional level. But they, at the end of the day, they need a rational reason to prop it up. They need to justify it rationally. And this is part of that justification. It's a part of the justification, too, if something goes wrong and somebody is looking at the details of the investment. If that kind of rational explanation isn't there, there's a big problem. Also very important is our seventh topic, and that is financial statements. Financial statements basically give the money situation that exists. Now, most of the time, my clients don't actually, there is no financial statements. This is a brand new entity. Uh-oh, that's a risk. We need to put that there. There's no financial statements. There's no background. There's no history on this entity to give financial statements for. We put that in our, our risk statement. But here, we're talking about the financial disposition of our company. What is the basis for it? What's the source of funds look like? <clears throat> 
Is it primarily through this offering? Is it all through this offer? Is there a third-party lender? What's the metrics that are being used in order for a third-party lender to have? Because that lender, if I go to a bank and get a bank loan, the bank has priority over all of my investors. Your, bar, your, your investors need to know that, what position that they're in so they can kind of make a good estimation of it. It's why your preferred equity people need to understand the business as well because they actually have priority over those common investors, but they need to know who's over them. They need to understand that as well. Is there going to be co-investment from you as the sponsor? Are you going to be putting money in as well? If you are, fantastic. If you're not, maybe your investors would like to know that. I wouldn't necessarily say call it out if you're not putting money, but if you get the question, you certainly should tell them. Uh, if you if you are, you definitely should tell them because investors are almost always going to ask how much skin in the game are you putting in? So this is another place where you can put that. What are the costs of the asset? You know, are you buying that one acre of land for $50 billion? That seems suspicious. Or are you buying that one acre of land for $10? Wow, what a great deal. Right, so what is the, the, what are those expenses that are being associated with it? If there's a development activity, what kind of development costs are there? Hard, hard and soft costs. What do the operating expenses look like that I as an investor are ultimately paying for by giving you this money? What are management fees? You know, am I, if I make this investment today and say we're buying a piece of real estate, are you immediately taking an acquisition fee? I kind of would like to know if you're getting your pocket, getting money in your pocket right away. It's probably not a problem, but I need to know that that's what's going on. Lastly, what kind of reserves are you planning in? Now, reserves to me, you know, as an investor, that signals you know what you're doing. Because if you have a zero dollars in reserves, something's wrong. You know, what kind of budget is that where there's no, there's no safety net whatsoever? It's not very safe. I would be thinking you're probably going to be making a capital call within a month. So what does the reserves look like? And what's your plan on reserves? How's that going to work? That's the talk about financial statements that needs to be in your private placement memorandum. The eighth topic are legal considerations. Now, probably you're doing this under Regulation D. It covers 98% of all of the, the funds that are, got, are gathered in the private investment world go under Regulation D. So it's probably a Regulation D rule, but what kind of entities are you using? It's a different thing, whether it's an LLC versus a corporation. Is it a partnership? That would be strange. Is it a limited partnership? That's important to know because that certainly changes the game and how I think about an investment. What, uh, what rule under Regulation D are you going under? Are you going under Rule 506B so that you accept non-accredited investors? Or are you going over under Regulation uh, five, uh, Rule 506C that allows for only accredited investors? I have to go through verification process. Those are things that need to be discussed. What is that criteria that you're using for uh, accredited and non-accredited investors? What have you decided you need to do in order to verify uh, accredited investors if you're going under Rule 506C? If there confidentiality in this, that's an important legal consideration as well. 
you know, how open is am I allowed to be? Can I tell everybody about this investment? Or are there certain things you're disclosing to me that need to be kept secret? What about international investors? International investors can invest, but are they being allowed to invest? What are the rules that you're using in order to allow those international investors to invest? And of course, that restriction on transferability is also a major legal consideration. The ninth major topic, and this really kind of is so critical because it's kind of the whole purpose behind the PPM to begin with, and that is investor suitability. An investor needs to be able to make that determine that ter determination that your investment is suitable for their own needs. They need to be able to figure out is the amount of risks that you're that you're that you have inherent in your investment. Is that suitable to me? Is this super high risk, but I need something very low risk? Or is this something extremely low risk and it's just not gonna give me the kind of returns? So is this suitable? Does it serve my needs? Are you a cash flow deal when all I want is appreciation? Or are you an appreciation deal and I just got, I'm gonna be living off this money, this is cash flow. I need to make those kind of things. What kind of expertise exists in it? So if you're buying just real estate, how much do I know as real estate? Is it really something I want to get involved in? Is it something I want to invest in? So when I'm looking at your, at your strategy and your tactics, I can understand them. Because if I don't, maybe I, this isn't the right kind of investment, right? You get all sorts of investors who know that I'm just not going to go into it because I just don't understand it. I mean, Warren Buffett himself didn't go into tech stocks for a very, very, very long time because he said he just didn't understand it. Now, he has invested in a number of tech stocks, but for a very long time, he didn't do any just because he didn't understand that market. And that's a sensible reason. It just wasn't suitable for him. Uh, so that uh, those kinds of decisions are necessary for your investors to make. And that's the suitability analysis that they need to go through. You, at the same time, have also somewhat of a burden in order to understand their, uh, their own suit the investor's suitability. If you know that the investor is a cash flow dependent person, they need that cash flow, but your deal's not going to cash flow for 10 years, you need to make sure that they really understand that your deal is not cash flowing. It may not be suitable for them. It would not be right to put them in the position of buying into your security and not making and and just not telling them, not making sure that they understood that. So this idea of suitability is critical. And the last thing that's often in a private placement memorandum is the process. So what do you need to do to invest? I've read through your PPM. I understand it. I'm ready to give you my $200,000 today. What do I need to do? That's oftentimes part of your PPM as well. Typically, the process is after you've read the PPM and had the opportunity to ask questions of the sponsor, then you will sign a subscription agreement. You will fill out an investor questionnaire. If you need to get accredited, uh, get a third party to say you're an accredited investor, you'll do that. You give those to the uh, sponsor. The sponsor looks at them, says, great, we're happy to have you aboard. Now you wire the money to the sponsor 
and then you countersign the subscription agreement. That's most often the, the order of events. But it may be totally different. Maybe you have some other thing. Maybe they need to register on a website or a portal or something like that. So this is the place where you would describe that. Wow, so there is our big deep dive into private placement memorandums. So I hope that you have found this video helpful. Now, me, I, my name is Tilda Muschietti. I am a syndication attorney with the Muschietti Syndication Law Group. What do we do? Well, we write PPMs. We also put together operating agreements, subscription agreements, questionnaires, file form Ds, notify states, everything that's needed in order for you to start a syndication, put together an investment fund, a real estate fund, or raise capital for your business. This is what we do every day. This is all we do every day is specialize in Regulation D. If we can be of service to you, I'd be happy to talk with you and see if there's a good fit. Give us a call and we'll schedule an appointment.